2: It's Pharrell on the bench in the biggest way possible. Hanging out. The bad seed, the broken egg, the bad apple with a bad attitude. Hanging around a bunch of bad adders, bad taste, bad log, bad dude, bad bread, bad attitude, bad vibe. So here we go again. I can never stop talking about the Astros sign-stealing scandal. It seems like an everyday occurrence on a bench. Even LeBron jumped in on it. Can you imagine the audacity of King James Jumping sports to get involved in the Astros scandal. So LeBron urged Manfred and his handling of the situation to, quote, fix this for the sake of sports, end quote. He said further, quote, listen, I know I don't play baseball, but I'm in sports. And I know if someone cheated me out of winning a title and I found out about it, I would be I irate. I mean, like uncontrollable about what I would or could do, end quote. He said this on Twitter, and then he said, quote, listen here, baseball commissioner, listen to your players speaking about how disgusted, mad, hurt, broken, etc., etc. et cetera, they are about this. Literally, the ball is in your court, or should I say field, and you need to fix this for the sake of sports. And then hashtag, just my thoughts coming from a sports junkie. Regardless, my own sport I play. There you go. LeBron getting involved. So James joins a list of players who have called out the Astros. and Manfred, Cody Bellinger, Justin Turner, roasted Manfred. Mike Trout got in on it. Aaron Judge. He finished a runner-up to Altuve in the 2017 AL MVP voting. He would have won that if Altuve and the Astros hadn't cheated. I mean, that's just all there is to it. The league investigation confirmed that the Astros cheated by using camera-based sign-stealing systems during their regular season of playoffs of their World Series winning season and during part of the 2018 season. I don't believe for one minute that it was just that chunk of 2017 and the playoffs and a part of 2018. I believe that it went on in 2018 the entire season and 2019 the entire season and ended when they got busted. Nobody stops doing their crime until they get busted. Everyone, I've said this before, continues to do wrong until they are caught and stopped. That's all there is to it in life. It happens with everything. I gave the example on yesterday's throw on the bench of the drunk driver. The drunk driver will drive until he's popped. Then he'll probably drive some more and get popped again and again until he finally learns his lesson or they take away his license or they take away his car or they put him in jail. Same thing with drug abusers. Same thing with people that steal. Same thing with people that plagiarize in school or cheat in school. They do it until they're caught. That's all there is to it. Of course, baseball announced that they were suspending the GM, the Astros, and A.J. Hinch, the manager for the season, and then they both got fired. The only player mentioned in the report was since-retired Carlos Beltran, who lost his job managing the Mets in the fallout of the scandal. We all know what happened with Alex Cora, and the Red Sox are going to be next To fall. They are going to have their own problems when this thing happens to them. And everybody knows it. I said yesterday on the pod, how about this commissioner having the gall to call the World Series trophy a, quote, piece of metal, end quote. I mean, can you imagine this guy saying that? I mean, how do you recover from that? I said on Coast to Coast on Sports Grid, my TV show the other day, that you just don't recover from it. His reputation, in my opinion, is shot with the players. It's kaput. It is not going to change. I don't think you recover from something like this. I really don't. He said now in apologies, quote, I refer to the World Series trophy in a disrespectful way and I want to apologize for it. There's no excuse for it. It was a mistake to say what I said. Of course, the players are livid with Manfred. He was speaking at the Cactus League Media Day and he was in the Arizona desert and he pledged to protect Mike Fires, the A's right hander, the former Astros pitcher who became the whistleblower when he went public in November with the story of the cheating. He said, quote, we will take every possible step to protect Mike Fires wherever he's playing, whether it's in Houston or somewhere else. Mike did the industry a service. The Astros played their first road game of the regular season March 30th at the A's, no less, who won 97 games each of the past two seasons to finish second to Houston in the American League West. They lost to the Astros, not because the Astros were better than them, but because the Astros cheated. I love what Aaron Judge said. He didn't mince words when he was talking about the Astros scandal, saying the team should vacate the title and that the players should have been punished. He said, quote, I just don't think it holds any value with me. You cheated and you didn't earn it. The Yankees outfielder said of the World Series that the Astros cheated to win. He said, quote, it wasn't earned the way of playing the game right and fighting to the end. The biggest thing about competition is laying it all out on the line. And whoever's the better player, better person comes out on top. And to know that another team had an advantage. Nothing that you can really guard against. I just don't feel like that's earned. It's just unbelievable. He was speaking after the Yankees finished their workout earlier this week, and he addressed the comments made last week by Cody Bellinger, who accused the Astros' Jose Altuve of stealing the MVP award from Judge. Judge confirmed that he deleted a social media post congratulating Altuve not long after he learned about the result of the investigation which backed up statements by fires that he made to be the whistleblower. Of course, Judge said, quote, I think I took it down right away when I think the story broke out, right when I think fires came out and stated that this was going on in 2017. Once I heard that, I was just sick to my stomach to find out. I had a lot of respect for those guys and what they did, especially what they did for the city of Houston and that whole organization. And then to find out that it wasn't earned, they cheated. That didn't sit well with me, and I just didn't feel like the post that I did really meant the same anymore. He said that he believed the Astros scandal had a direct impact on the ALCS which the Yankees lost to Houston in seven games, no less. And even though the investigation detailed that the sign stealing did not take place in 2019, the Yankees outfielder believes that it continued. He said, quote, from what the report stated, they cheated in 17 and 18. That affected a lot of games. No matter what anybody says, that impacts the game. Knowing what's coming, that's more people on base. You're getting more walks. You're getting more hits. Come to the plate with more opportunities with guys on base. So it definitely impacted the results of that series. And they say that we didn't score runs. We didn't do this and that, but it affected the game big time. He said it's tough to think that it didn't continue. I don't know all the facts. Nobody knows all the facts. So to think that they cheated and won it all in 17, to think that they just – Clear-cut stop the next in 18 or 19 or whatever. It's tough for me to say that, but we'll never really know, to be honest. I don't think so. Well, neither do I. Judge said he disagreed with the fact that the players themselves did not receive any punishment from Rob Manfred, the commissioner who no one respects anymore. He said, quote, I really wasn't a fan of the punishment. I thought that was a little weak for a player-driven scheme that no players involved got any punishments. When it comes down to a player-driven scheme, I feel like the players involved need to be punished. If I go out there and cheat the game, I think you Darvish was the one that said, if you're playing in the Olympics, you win a gold medal, and they find out you cheated, you don't get to keep the medal. But in baseball, you do. In baseball, they glorify cheaters. They let the Astros keep their rings, and their World Series trophy, and their banners, and their fans got to celebrate, and their big parade, and everybody felt sorry. Sorry for the city of Houston for all the problems that they had with bad weather. Now everyone hates the city of Houston and no one respects them. And everyone hates the Astros. I mean, they hate the Astros more than any team in sports. They are doomed. Fans are going to turn on them like sieves. Every time they're in another city, they're going to get abused verbally. They're going to get assaulted verbally. They're going to have people throwing things at them. Beers and the finger. People will utilize giving the finger to players again. They will start throwing the bird whenever they have a chance. Maybe they'll even try to throw dead birds at them, at their feet. So Judge is nursing a cranky, sore right shoulder. He's going to miss their opening spring training game, and he wasn't doing batting practice. Aaron Boone said that even though the Yankees shut down Judge from hitting and throwing during the in MRI and a series of tests did not reveal any injury, Judge missed 50 games last year due to an oblique and had a sliding catch in September that jammed his right shoulder and kept him out of the lineup. It was minor at the time. Judge said, it probably started a couple of weeks ago when I first got down to Florida. I've been hitting since early November and working out since early November. And once I got down here, hit on the field, hitting outside, I just felt a little soreness in the shoulder, nothing alarming. So I said, hey, we got plenty of time going into spring training. Let's take it slow the next couple of days, make sure everything's right, and then kind of go from here. So he's just playing and working and trying to get through small injuries, and the Astros are trying to get through all of their BS. Inject swearing here. The Yankees do it right. Everybody hates the Yankees because they win championships and because they buy everything and have such a high payroll and have all the superstar players and losers that hate their guts say they're all on steroids. Meanwhile, the same people that said they're on steroids and the whole team's on steroids. It's coming from a team that cheated to win their World Series in 2018. I go on the air on TV. I got people that work at the TV telling me it's the Yankees that cheat. No, it's the Red Sox and the Astros that cheat and got busted for it. Shut your face. I'm sick and tired of listening to people tell me it's the Yankees' fault or somebody else's fault. It is so ridiculous. I mean, it is unbelievable. You get busted, you get popped, and then you point the finger at other people for other stuff that happened or didn't happen or might have happened or could have happened or a long time ago happened or what. So the steroid scandal in baseball is all the Yankees' fault. I get it. So nobody else had any involvement or nobody else was on steroids except for what? 90% of the league. And then how about this one? They blame the Yankees for being on steroids, but nobody ever talks about Big Poppy. He was on the list, but nobody ever talks about Big Poppy doing roids. It is unbelievable. Boston fans are drunk or high or both. That's all there is to it. They need to shut up, and their entire 2018 season was a joke, and they cheated, and they don't deserve their ring or title either or the trophy that Manfred disrespected. He'll never recover from saying that with all your cheesy, pathetic apologies. Screw you six ways
3: till Sunday, Manfred.
1: Listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This or not, but baseball is rolling out several rule changes for the upcoming season, the biggest being the three batter minimum for pitchers. Baseball and the union agreed to the changes in March of 2019, So they've been out there for a while, but the league made an announcement of the implementation of these rules as spring training is rolling out. The new three batter rule is requiring pitchers to face at least three batters or finish a half inning. It'll have the biggest impact on the game, but other changes have also been made. So anyway, talk about the three batter minimum. Pitchers will be required to face a minimum of three batters, pitch, to the end of a half inning, with exceptions to be made in the case of injury or illness. Currently, Rule 5.10F states that the starting pitcher must pitch to one batter until the batter is put out or reaches base. The Rule 5.10G states that any reliever must pitch to one batter until that batter is put out or reaches base or the offensive team is put out. The new rule means no more managers bringing in a pitcher in the middle of the inning having him face one batter, then trudging back to the mound to make another change. Setting strategy debates. Who's going to complain about that? No one enjoys the dead time of a pitching change. It takes forever, especially when there's a prey to them in a half inning where multiple guys come out. It never ends. No wonder games take four hours. 2019, there were 649 appearances that would not have been allowed had the new rule been in effect. That's based on the... Elias Sports Research, in 2018, there were 712 such appearances, and in 2017, there were 720. 649 appearances past season accounted for the lowest total since 2000, when there were 647. It figures to be one violation in every 3.74 games, which may not seem like a lot, but the presence of the role would impact decisions made with regard to pitchers and pinch hitters on a wider range, when you think about it. Now, they also have a roster size situation. The number of active players on each team's roster will increase to 26, up from 25 through August 31st. And for the postseason, rosters will expand to 28 on September 1st, a big change to the 40 man limit of the past. Carrying a 28 man roster for September will be mandatory for every team. Also, teams will be allowed to carry a 27 player for double headers. Teams have been allowed a 26 player for doubleheaders the last few years. The number of pitchers a team can carry on its active roster will be capped at 13 through August 31st and then 14 for September. So, in addition to pushing the limits of common sense, why play by one set of rules for five months and then a different set of rules when the games really matter? Expanded rosters in September created a competitive imbalance, and, you know, with the rise in pitching changes, help make games just take forever, and just people are freaking out about it. And then that's when intensity should be at its peak. The issue has gotten worse lately in the last few years is some teams carried upward of 20 pitchers. Also, while some teams used most of their added roster spots, others added just like a player or two under the new rules, teams will all have 28 players in September. It'll be interesting to see how teams use the extra spot when the rosters are finalized at the end of spring training And then, you know, you ask will teams add an extra bullpen arm or whatever, a power bat, or make a defensive player or base running specialist an impact position. So also with the limit on the number of pitchers a team can carry, players must be designated as a pitcher, position player, or a two-way player prior to each player's first day on the active roster. And the designation cannot be changed for the remainder of the season to qualify for the two-way Player status: A player must have pitched at least 20 innings and started at least 20 major league games as a position player or a DH with at least three played appearances in each of those games in the current or previous season. Position players who are not designated as two-way players will not be allowed to pitch in a game unless the run differential in the game is seven or more runs or if the game is in extra innings. Why are they doing it? Well, the number of position players pitching has risen dramatically the last few years, with a record 90 appearances in 2019 and 65 appearances in 2018. So it's skyrocketed from 65 to 90. By comparison, there were 26 instances in 2016, 14 in 2013, and just 8 in 2011. I mean, look at that. 2011, there was 8 of them, and in 2019, there were 90 of them. That's crazy. The vast majority of the instances of position players pitching would still be allowed under the new rules 83 of the 90 appearances in 2019 and 60 of the 65 in 2018 would fall into that category. This uh, change seems likely to at least keep the numbers from growing at such a gigantic rate from the numbers that I gave you. Like skyrocketing from 8 to, you know, 14 to 26 to 65 to 90. I mean, that's just crazy. And then people say, what about Otani? A celebrated two-way star as a rookie in 2018. Ohtani did not pitch in 2019 after having Tommy John surgery, and the Angels have said they don't plan on using him as a pitcher until mid-May at the earliest. The way to rule originally was written, Ohtani would not qualify as a two-way player at the start of the season, but an exception was made for 2020 only to include stats from 2018. So even with that, Ohtani could have been designated as a pitcher and served still as a DH. There's no restriction on pitchers serving as position players. It's just the other way around. You know, as a designated two way player, Otani would not count toward the new thirteen pitcher limit. It would give the Angels the option of having an extra pitcher. The Angels would get more benefits. The GM recently said on MLB radio that Otani could go on a rehab assignment as a pitcher without being placed on the injured list, making him eligible to serve as a hitter. He said, Quote, We'll be able to send Otani on the actual rehab assignment as a pitcher, and then the very next day if we choose, we can use him in a major league game as a hitter, Epler said you think about it, Reds reliever Mike Lorenzen was the closest to qualify as a two-way player last season. He played 29 games in the outfield, only started six, but his success as a hitter dropped off considerably in 2019. He hit only .208 with one homer and 48 at at-bats after hitting .290 with four homers and 31 at at-bats in 2018. And the Reds then got better in their outfield in the offseason, and now they're not going to need to use him in that role. As far as the injured list goes, pitchers placed on the injured list will have to miss at least 15 days minimum, rather than the 10-day minimum for position players. The minimum IL stay was changed from 15 to 10 before the start of the 2017 season. Did you think it was that long ago? The seven-day concussion list will be unchanged. So why do that? Well, the shortened list was intended to allow teams to rest players with less serious injuries Rather than potentially rushing back, teams frequently use it to create like a taxi squad, they say, for pitchers. The starters would be placed on a 10-day IL, skipping just one turn through the rotation, which teams would bring up a fresh arm from the bullpen or whatever, leading to more pitching changes, and then it impacts the pace of play. Trips to the IL have topped 700 every season until 2017. There were 563 DL stints in 2016, so it's just crazy. Now, as far as the minors go, with some exceptions for injured list or bereavement lists, all players option to the minors have to stay there for at least 10 days before being recalled. In 2020, minor league options for pitchers will switch to a minimum of 15 days. The option period will remain 10 days for position players. So making pitchers remain in the minors for at least 15 days before being recalled is another step to prevent teams from repeatedly rotating fresh arms on and off the Major League roster designed to curb the rising number of pitching changes. So at the end of the day, it's a lot of rules like the three batter minimum rule, expanding rosters to 26 and limiting September call-ups, and then the rule limiting when position players can pitch. You think of what they're going to do now, how teams will deploy the 26-man. You got pinch hitters in the past, whatever, guys like Lenny Harris and Dave Hansen and remember Rusty Stop. Now you got guys like Matt Choice, Matt Adams, Mike Ford, Nick Martini, Matt Beatty, Phil Goslin. There's all kinds of guys that do it. You got pinch runner, defensive specialists. In the past, you had guys like Otis Nixon, Mike Squires, Rafi Belliard, and now you got Billy Hamiltons, Miles Straw, Andrew Stevenson, Travis Jankowski, Roman Quinn, Jorge Mateo, you got platoon bats back in the day like Dave Bergman and Dave Magadan and guys like that. Now you got Domingo Santana, Ryan Zimmerman, G-Man Choi, Austin Riley, Josh Naylor, And then you got third catchers in the past. You have Jamie Quirks and Steve Legs. Now you have all kinds of guys. Zach Collins, Russell Martin, Garrett Stubbs, Andrew Kneisner, and then Kyle Farmer. It just never ends. You got two-way players like Jake Cronenworth or Jared Walsh. So the game is evolving and changing constantly. These rules, I think, they're not the worst things I've ever heard in my life. Anything to make the games go a little quicker and... Not having teams screw with the rules so they can have more fresh arms. And then I think they got to try to make September more meaningful instead of expanding the roster so much that it will make the games more important and who's on the roster more important. And I don't know if you saw this or not. The University of Georgia right-hander Emerson Hancock was a consensus top three prospect for the 2020 draft, and he had a start on Friday if you go back. It ended up being the second worst start of his college career stat-wise. And some think the worst ever, if you consider who they were playing. They were at home in Athens. They were taking on Richmond. And he went four innings, gave up nine hits and six runs. His fastball was sitting in the 94, 95, 96 range. He hit 97 in the first couple of innings. He had a great slider going, mid-90s. He brought out his changeup in the second And everybody's talking about this guy being the greatest thing since sliced bread, but he was off all night and his body language was bad. Everybody's talking about it. He didn't go below 93 miles an hour. His changeup wasn't a 70 grade pitch. It was plus multiple times he had it going. And the guy, Hancock, they say never usually has execution problems. So everybody was talking about his bad performance. One of the things I've been seeing left and right is how deep the SEC is for the draft. The draft class is huge, strong, deep, and most of the players are coming from the SEC. They're saying 12 of the 16 teams in the conference have a chance to have a top 50 overall pick, and that is crazy. Not only that, they're saying that the SEC will be strong in the 2021 draft with Judd Fabian, a Florida outfielder, high on the list. They're saying the ACC is the second-best conference in terms of prospect power. Miami is back, leading the way with right-handers Chris McMahon and Slade, Sakani, and shortstop Freddie Zamora, all expected to go in the first two rounds in 2020. Just a little baseball draft skinny for you, Shaggy. just thinking about going to vegas on thursday so we're going tomorrow carver high and i are going to see wilder fury 2 the heavyweight championship of the world and i was thinking of all the fights that i've been to at least some of them right and i was looking back and thinking back to some of the great ones not even just the great ones but just so many that i went to and i went back to not just all in vegas at the very least i remember going to see mayweather fight arturo gotti at boardwalk hall Back in like 2005. And then I saw him fight Zab Judah at the Thomas and Mack Center in Vegas in like 2006. I remember that. That was a unanimous decision. And then I saw him fight Carlos Baldomir at the Mandalay Bay Event Center where the fishes fly. Uh, another unanimous decision. And then the De La Jolla fight at the Grand Garden Arena in May of 2007. I think it was on Cinco de Mayo. That made him 38-0, and 0, a split decision. So, obviously, De La Huy gave him a fight, and he won Mayweather the WBC light middleweight title with that fight. I think the Zab Judah fight, he won the IBF and IBO welterweight titles or something like that. And that one, the Baltimore fight, he won the WBC... IBA and Ring lineal championships, etc., etc. I saw him fight Ricky Hatton in a TKO in the tenth round at the Grand Garden Arena in December of two thousand seven. I remember that one. He went to thirty nine and zero. Then the Manuel Marquez Juan Manuel Marquez fight, I think, was in September of two thousand nine. I saw the Shane Mosley fight in May of twenty ten at the Grand Garden Arena. The Victor Ortiz fight, everybody remembers when. Mayweather knocked him out. Like right after Ortiz, they checked his gloves to see if everybody was all right. And then Mayweather sucker punched him, if you remember. And he won the WBC weatherweight title. That was at the Grand Garden Arena. Everybody thought that was a cheap shot by Mayweather. He went to 42-0. I went to the Miguel Cotto fight with Mayweather when he went to 43-0. Basically all of his last fights. That one was at the Grand Garden Arena. He won the WBA super light middleweight title that night. I went to see him fight the Ghost Robert Guerrero at the Grand Garden Arena in May of 2013. I think that was a Cinco de Mayo fight. Then the Canelo fight. He beat him in a majority decision at the Grand Garden Arena. He retained his super light middleweight title and won the WBC ring in vacant lineal light middleweight titles with that win over Canelo. Then I saw him go to 46-0 and when he beat Marcos Madonna at the Grand Garden Arena in May of 2014, the next year. And he won the WBA Super Welderweight title. The guy's got so many belts make you sick. Then he fought Maidana again at the Grand Garden Arena in September of the same year, a few months later, and beat him again. A unanimous decision. That was boring. Then the Pacquiao fight, of course. Everybody waited for that forever. And Mayweather won the fight. It was a unanimous decision at 12, of course. Pacquiao complained he had a bad shoulder that night. But... Mayweather won the WBO Welderweight title that night, and then he fought Andre Berto. That was a terrible fight at the Grand Garden Arena in September of 2015. Then I saw him beat Conor McGregor. That was at the T-Mobile Arena, and then he never fought again. I went to so many of this guy's fights, it's not even funny. I saw him, like I said, fight Gotti at the boardwalk in Atlantic City, DeMarcus Corley at the boardwalk in Atlantic City. I saw the guy fight everybody. I saw him fight at other places in Vegas where the fishes fly, the Mandalay Bay, you name it. So I saw so many of this guy's fights, it's not even funny. Same thing with Wilder. I saw him beat Fury at the Staples Center in Lipstick City. I saw the Luis King Kong Ortiz fight at the Grand Garden Arena. I saw him fight Ortiz at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. He hasn't really fought that many times. I saw him fight Stiverne the Canadian, at the Grand Garden Arena in, like, January of 2015. He just really hasn't fought there that much when you think about it. He fought everywhere. He fought at the Barclays, fought in Birmingham a lot at that Legacy Arena fought so many of his fights there, fought in Birmingham, fought in Carson, California. I remember one of his fights was out there. He's fought at the Boardwalk Hall back in the day in like 2013. I even saw him fight at the Fantasy Springs Resort in Indio Cali. My friend runs that place. But here I go again to watch him fight Fury with Carver High. The first fight was unbelievable. A draw, and he retained his WBC heavyweight title, in all of his fights, you go back to the Molina fight. The Stiverne fight I saw at the Grand Garden Arena was when he won the heavyweight title in 2015. Then he retained it in fights against Molina. Then he fought this guy, a French pro, Johan Dupas. I remember he fought him. Then he defended it again and again and again and again and again. He's just been winning and retaining this belt forever now. You know, he got it in 2015 and he's held it. In 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and through February here of 2020. So basically six years he's owned the WBC heavyweight title. Now, these guys don't like each other. I think Fury is a really good fighter. There's no denying it. I don't buy into this lineal champion stuff. Same thing when Mayweather was winning those titles. I don't really get into all that nonsense. You're either the big-time champ or you're not. The WBC, the WBO, the WBA, all that, IBF. I'll give respect to those, but these other ones like Lineal Champ, Ring Magazine, and everything else, I just don't care about any of that stuff, and neither does anybody else. The same thing goes for Pacquiao. I go back to when he lost to Eric Morales in... I think 2005 at the Grand Garden Arena. It was for the IBA and WBC super featherweight title. He lost to Morales. The guy was a great Mexican boxer. He fought from like 93 to 2012. He was the first Mexican-born fighter in history to win world titles in four different weight classes. The guy was a great fighter. He held the WBC super bantamweight title from 97 to 2000. Just incredible. I was actually there for that fight. I saw him fight Morales again, and he beat him at the Thomas & Mac in 2006. He fought him again at the Thomas & Mac in November of the same year, beat him again with a knockout in the third round. I saw him fight Marco Antonio Barrera and win a unanimous decision at the Mandalay Bay Event Center in Vegas in October of 2007. He fought... Juan Manuel Marquez, a split decision win at the Mandalay Bay. That was great. I saw him fight Oscar De La Hoya at the Grand Garden Arena. And he beat him in December of 2008. I saw him fight Ricky Hatton at the Grand Garden Arena in 2009 and Miguel Cotto in 2009. And then I saw him fight Shane Mosley at the Grand Garden Arena in 2009. 2011, and then Marquez again at the Grand Garden Arena. At that time, he beat him again, a majority decision. That was in 2011, and then I saw him fight Marquez again at the Grand Garden Arena. In 2012, I mean, he fought him so many times, I can't even keep up with it. I saw him fight Timothy Bradley at the Grand Garden Arena. Saw him fight Floyd Mayweather, as I mentioned earlier. Saw him fight Timothy Bradley at the Grand Garden Arena. I mean, I have been at every fight that ever mattered. The Broner fight, the Keith Thurman fight. I've been to every Pacquiao fight that he ever fought, basically. And I'm still going to Pacquiao fights. It's unbelievable. Some of my favorite fights I ever went to out there were Tyson fights. I go back to the Francois Botha fight at the Grand Garden Arena in 1999. The Holyfield fight at the Grand Garden Arena. He fought him there twice. I went to both of them. I think it was 96 and 97. and I saw him fight Frank Bruno at the Grand Garden Arena. I saw him fight Peter McNeely at the Grand Garden Arena in 1995 when I was working at WFAN in Westwood One and I lived in Los Angeles. I mean, what didn't I see this guy do? I would have loved to have been at the Buster Douglas fight, no doubt about it, but I wasn't there for that one. But I saw him fight so many times, there was nothing like going to a Tyson fight. That guy still makes people freak out when he's in Vegas. When they see Mike Tyson, people have a conniption And I just think some of the greatest moments in my life were in Vegas going to these big fights. Carver High, I started taking him to fights. Mafia, I started taking him to fights. Mafia started getting exposed to both boxing and the UFC because of me. I know he's a huge fan of it. I know he's a bigger fan of MMA and UFC than I ever will be. But I covered it longer than he has. And he's done way more fights than me now. He's caught up to me. But I did it every single card for like two years. So I brought those guys to Vegas. I brought all of my producers in history to Vegas with me to do shows. I've done 90 title fights at least in my career. Every time we go, we have a blast. We party, we go out and eat, we go to clubs. We've been to every club in Vegas. Good clubs, bad clubs, dirty clubs, filthy clubs, stripper clubs. We've been to every restaurant known to man in Vegas. Obviously after work, we're gonna be doing the shows there on Sports Grid. So we'll be live from 4 to 6 Eastern, 7 to 9 Eastern, Thursday night and Friday night from the MGM. And then those shows will be 1 to 3 Vegas time and 4 to 6 Vegas time. So I can't wait to do it again. It's usually a great time. A lot of famous people are there. You get a lot of great guests on the show. I usually try to get the fighters on the show. I get my buddy Bruce Binkow at PBC on the show. He used to run Golden Boy Boxing. I've been to so many Oscar De La Hoya fights, too. I can't even keep track of all of them. I've just been to millions of fights and seen so much in Vegas and partied so much and did so many crazy things there and pool parties and felonies. You name it, I've done it all. I love going. I have a million friends that live in Vegas. I used to live in Vegas. I used to do my show in Vegas. I used to live at the Mandalay Bay, and I lived on Vegas's Cobble Lane, which is right behind the Strip. I lived there, and I did shows at Bally's. I was on Sports Entertainment Network when I lived in Vegas, and I went national really for the first time in my career when I lived in Vegas. So. Tons of memories, tons of good friends, tons of fights. It'll be fun to get on that big Jetta or liner and cruise out to Cincinnati to make it a hub and hit another big fight. I can't wait to see Carver Hyde's expression when he goes to the heavyweight championship of the world. Mafia went the first time to see the Tyson Fury Wilder fight at Staples in Lipstick City. So this is just a little different. It's different than L.A. It's Vegas and the Grand Garden Arena. They love having fights there. t Mobile's bigger and newer and everything else. But the bottom line is they still like the quaint atmosphere of the Grand Garden Arena. And it is quite a scene for a fight. The energy is palpable. I can't wait. Make sure you tune in. You can hear us on SportsGrid, of course, the SportsGrid app. The Fantasy Sports Network, Fantasy Sports Radio app. Both of those apps carry the shows. And the Pharrell and a Bench podcast. You get it on iTunes. Everywhere podcasts are available. Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts. It's everywhere. Don't forget we're on Pluto TV 517, Zumo TV 719, Watchster 352, and YouTube slash Sports Grid Network. We'll see you in Vegas. And uh, obviously, I think you're going to dig the shows a ton. Do you- You know, I was talking about the lightning on the Pharrell a Bench pod the other day and how good they are. And they are loaded. They're very dangerous. I think when it's all said and done, they're going to pass the Bruins. And I think they'll uh, be tough to eliminate in the playoffs. And they're going to they're be reckoned with. I mean, I am telling you, they are a team that is loaded and deep and can kill you in many ways. And then, you know, the Bruins are really good, I won't deny it. But I think Tampa's going to pass them. And I talked about some other teams that are good, like the Capitals and, you know, the Penguins. And, you know, some of the teams that are doing well, most of them are in the Metro. The Islanders, Jackets, Flyers have all been tough. The Canes have been hanging in there. Looks like the Rangers and Devils are toast. But in the Atlantic, I only really respect the Bruins and Lightning. Everyone else is sketchy at best. The Leafs have been, you know, on and off, average at best. Panthers have been, I think, disappointing. I mean, when you're 16 and 12 at home, it's just not good enough. I think the Sabers have been good at home but terrible on the road. Nine and 14 is just not going to cut it. The Canadians again stink. They got a losing record at home, a better record on the road, and then Ottawa and Detroit can forget about it; they're done. But the team that I want to talk about being dangerous. Is the Penguins. I mean, they are filthy good again. They're looking at going twenty-two, five, and four at home. They're five games over five hundred on the road. Their plus differential in goals is sickening. They're like eight, two, and one and eleven. They've won three straight. They're kicking ass and taking names. I was watching them play the Leafs the other night. I mean, it was just absolutely unbelievable how badly they were kicking their ass. I think at the beginning of the game. I think they scored the first five goals of the game. And if you think back to mid-November, they played them in Pittsburgh. And in that game, they beat their ass. And if I remember, in that game, the goals and everything, I think Gensel had a power play goal. He doesn't even play anymore. He got injured. And then Malkin had a goal. Cahoon, I think, had a goal. Maybe two goals in that game. McCann had a goal. And Rust had a shorty to stuff it in in the third period. And they won that game 6-1, to one. so... I mean, they already kicked the Leafs' ass once. Then they play him again the other night in Pittsburgh, and it was the same thing. I mean, it was a good game at the beginning of the game, but then Russ got the power play goal. I think it was Latang over to Crosby. Crosby slid it across the crease, and Russ popped it in, and that made it one zip. And then Mulgan didn't play. He had flu-like symptoms before the game. He went out and did the skate warming up and everything, and he felt sick. Again, he felt awful, so he skated off the ice and went to the room, and he never played. So they let this kid Angelo play. Anthony Angelo, his first NHL game. and What happens? He scores a goal. That's what happened. 17 minutes into the first period from Pedersen and Lafferty, another two no-names nobody cares about. They're producing. And then Zucker had a goal. I think that made it 3-0. That was a power play goal from Crosby and Rust. All they do is produce. I mean, Crosby and Rust just... Getting it done on that line. Zucker's new. They got him in a trade from the wild. He had two goals the other night, 15 and 16. And then against the Leafs, had his 17th, the power play goal. So that power play is vicious with Zucker on that line. Crosby had a goal. That made it 4 nothing. I think that was from McCann and Hornquist. Just the game before, Hornquist had had a hat trick. I mean, they've been kicking everyone's ass. That was against the Red Wings. Bluger then scored a goal from Crosby and Russ. That made it 5-0. I mean, my God, they are just pounding it in the net and crushing everyone. I think Austin Matthews had a goal. That was a clean one. That was the first one. They were down 5-0. He scored, made it 5-1. And then I think Clifford, Kyle Clifford had one off his skate. He didn't even shoot it. It just was shot off his skate and it went in. It was 5-2. But the Penguins are just dealing. I mean, they mean business. This team is loaded with talent. I mean, think about it. You add Zucker to that team, they already have Tanev, Simone, Russ, McCann, Laverty, Cahoon, Hornquist, Crosby, Bluger, now the kid, Angelo, who they'll barely play on defense, Jack Johnson, Latang, Pedersen, and Ricola, Ruedel, and Justin Schultz. The goalies are sickening, Jerry and Murray. Jerry's been incredible, 93 save percentage. The guy's been winning. The guy's been tough. He stood on his head many times. All they do is win. It really is impressive when you think about it. I was looking at him and I was thinking, I got to see their stats for the season because it's just insane. And the way they play lately, they beat the Red Wings, beat the Canadians, lost to the Lightning 2-1, so they can play the best teams in the league and lose 2-1. They beat the Panthers 3-2, lost to the Lightning 4-2, so they lost to the Lightning twice. Beat the Capitals 4-3, beat the Flyers 4-3, lost to the Flyers 3-zip, beat the Bruins 4-3, went to Detroit, beat the Red Wings 2-1, lost 4-1 at Boston. Boston stuff, they beat them, but then they beat Boston. They beat the Wild, beat the Coyotes, beat the Avs, beat the Golden Knights, lost the game strangely to the Panthers in Pittsburgh, and then they won at Montreal, lost to the Sharks at home. That was surprising, but... Over the last month, they have just been killing it. And the stats are just absolutely unbelievable. Malkin has 58 points to lead the team, 18 goals, 40 assists. Rust has 45 points. No one saw that coming. 22 goals, 23 assists. He averages 20 minutes. I mean, the guy's produced. He's got six power play goals, seven power play assists. Malkin has five power play goals and 15 power play assists. Gensel, he's injured, he's done, but he had 43 points when he went out. Six power play goals. Letang has been incredible. 39 points, 14 goals, 25 assists, six power play goals, eight power play assists. He's having a great year. Crosby was out for a major portion of the season. He's got 11 goals, 25 assists, 36 points, three power play goals, nine power play assists. McCann has 14 goals, 17 assists, 31 points. He's a plus eight, two power play goals. Cahoon's got 27 points. Hornquist got 14 goals, 26 points, two power play goals, three power play assists. Had another one the other night. Tanev's got 25 points, 11 goals, a power play assist. He's been a nice pickup. Johnny Marino on D, 25 points. No one saw that coming. A power play goal, three power play assists. Simone's got seven goals, 22 points. A power play assist. Bluger, eight goals, 21 points. It goes on and on and on. I mean, this team has been absolutely unbelievable. They are so deep, so loaded. Malkin leads them in points. Russ leads them in goals. Malkin leads them in assists. Malkin even leads them in penalty minutes. And Dumoulin, uh, plus 17, is tops on the team. So you mess with this team, you're going to get your ass beat. That's all there is to it. You can think whatever you want about them, but they are tough as hell. I mean, I just think they look like a playoff winner. They look like a team that's going to do damage in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Last year, I never really had that feeling. I thought that they were good. I didn't think they were great. And then they got rocked, you know, to me in the series against the Islanders when they lost in overtime in game 1-4-3 that was it they never recovered from that they were never the same they got wiped out in games 2-3-4 and four, and everybody made fun of them until the Islanders went and got swept by the Canes in the next round so who's laughing at who? what's the difference? you get swept in the first round you get swept in the second round either way you got swept you got your ass beat both teams got their ass beat. Even though the Penguins lost to the Islanders, the Islanders turned around and got swept. What's the difference? There is no difference. And the Islanders had second place in the Metro for a big portion of this season, but the Penguins passed them. And if you ask me, the Penguins are gonna they're gonna win the division. They're gonna win the Metro. I think they're better in the Capitals, all things being equal. I think they're more consistent. Lately, the Capitals have lost some games. I mean, I'm not going to deny that the Capitals are really good, but look, they lost to the Knights 3 2 the other night. Before that, they lost 3 1 to the Coyotes. They won in Colorado in a wild game 3 2, but they had lost to the Islanders at home in D.C. 5 3. Lost to the Flyers at home 7 2. They got their ass beat. Yeah, they were able to beat the Kings, but they suck. They lost to the Penguins 4 3. They beat the Senators on the road. That's easy. They're terrible. They lost to the Predators 5-4, and the Predators have been bunk. The only good stretch they've had lately, and I'll admit it was a good stretch, was when they beat the Canadians, Islanders, Devils, and Canes all in a row. Prior to that, they had lost to the Devils and Flyers, and then before that, they beat the Senators, Sharks, and Canes. So they've been up and down. They even lost to the Islanders and Canes going way back a month. So the Capitals score 3.4 goals a game. They give up three a game. Their power plays less than the Penguins. Their penalty kill's lower than the Penguins. Power play at 20.7%. Penalty kill at 83.9%. So if you ask me, they've started to leak a little bit and show some inconsistencies, and they haven't been playing great, and they've been losing a lot. I mean, they've lost six games in their last 10, and I've been watching them lose while the Penguins have been kicking ass and taking names and catching them. And I think when it's all said and done, they're going to pass them and dagger them, finish them off, and then win the Metro. And we all know that a couple years ago, the Capitals got it done and won the Stanley Cup. And God bless them. They deserved it. They earned it the hard way. And that was a badass season for them. But prior to that, the Penguins owned the Capitals in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, they were like their worst nightmare. It was like every single time that the Capitals hooked up with the Penguins, the Penguins won the series. And everybody knows that it was always about Ovi and Crosby. And what happened every time? Crosby beat him. It's like every time the Penguins win the Stanley Cup, they go through the Capitals. So what makes me think they can't do it again? I mean, I think that they can. I'm not afraid of the Capitals. I think they're really good. But the Penguins have beat them so many times in the playoffs before. I actually think they can beat them again. And I'm not that worried about it. It's the Islanders that I worry about because the Islanders seem to have the Penguins number. They always seem to beat them in the playoffs, and that goes back to the 70s. Drove me nuts with the Islanders beating them. Billy Smith and those guys, I couldn't stand them. I can't stand them now. So I worry more about them than I do a team that's better than them. I think the Capitals are better than the Islanders. I think the Capitals are better than Columbus, Philly, Carolina, all of them. But I think the Penguins are better than the Capitals. So let's get it on. At the end of the day... I think the Penguins will win that Metro. They're the best team in the division, and I think they can beat the Capitals in the playoffs. And this year, I think I'd love to see them get even with the Islanders and kick their ass, too. So let's dance. I'm ready for April to come around and let's spit shine your shoes. We're going dancing with Lord Stanley, baby. And by the way, when I'm in Vegas, I'm going to go see the Vegas Knights play... The Lightning, how good is that going to be? Tampa Bay against the Golden Knights at T-Mobile Arena on Thursday night. You know Carver High and I are going to have to slip away and see that one. Time to call the PR people and get them Mooch tickets, baby. Hope you dug all on the bench today. Shake it out.